Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you, Jay, for the team leading. Thanks, Owen and Janae and Jamie up on stage playing and all heading off in different routes. Jason, as I was kind of looking at the stage while you ran off, I realized if you weren't on stage, I think the average age was like 16 or 17. And that's just awesome. I think that is so cool. And uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Just in the midst of obviously a little bit of distraction and disturbance, one of the announcements may have been missed, and I just want to echo it and kind of remind us again, the farewell for David Hogan, it has been advertised as being on the 14th of April, that has been changed, not that we're trying to kick him out any sooner, we're having his farewell on the 7th of April, and the reason for that is because we've discovered that on the 14th, Catherine will have already left for Grand Prairie, and so we don't want to do a farewell when half the family are not here for that. So David Hogan's farewell will be Sunday, the 7th of April, straight after the morning service, and we'll kind of celebrate and, and bid farewell during that Sunday, even though David will be here the next Sunday, but his official farewell will be on the 7th. So that should now be well noted for all of you. Tell you what, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them, Merry Christmas. <laughs> no, don't laugh. Turn to the person. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Janae. You're all on your own there. Nobody can say Merry Christmas to you. Christmas really is a fantastic time of the year, isn't it? I mean, there's the excitement. I remember as a child, Christmas was always one of my favorite times of the year because there's the excitement. You don't know what you're going to unwrap and discover under the tree. And so there's the, the anticipation, the expectation. Uh, now as a parent, I still love Christmas because I see that expectation and I see that excitement in my children. Uh, I love Christmas because it's a time of family where we gather together. It's a time of good food, of celebration, of love and fun. And, uh, and I know, I know what you're thinking. You're going, Brian, you've lost the plot. We're actually in the middle of Easter. This is Lent. It's not Advent. We've got Easter coming, not Christmas. Well, I just love how God lines up the scriptures. When we as apostle team sit down and say, we should do this series, we should go through kind of this book or, or whatever it is for the time being, and I love how God just lines things up for us sometimes and just gets them so perfectly. Today's text, as you heard from Jennifer, we've been going through the book of Luke. Today we are in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And it's the Christmas story. And how awesome that we get to look at Christmas in the middle of Lent. In the middle of looking towards Easter, the coming cross of Jesus Christ. And we get to start again. Christmas was the beginning. And as we've said before, Easter was the reason. Easter, the cross of Jesus Christ, is the reason for the season. And that's for both of them. Yes, Advent focuses on the hope. It focuses on joy. It focuses on love, on peace, and everything found in Jesus Christ. Lent prepares our hearts for that ultimate sacrifice. It's a somber time, a time of self-sacrifice, of giving up. The Christmas story reminds us of the great love of God. The love of God that in his love for us, he sent his son Jesus to this earth for us. 
And Easter is that conclusion of that incredible story of love. If Jesus had never come, he would never have gone to the cross. And if Jesus never went to the cross, we would never experience salvation or redemption. You cannot have one without the other. Love came down for you and I. And so to go through a series in the book of Luke and come to this point right now is God's perfect timing as far as I'm concerned. I'm reminded of the Proverbs that say many are the plans of a person's heart, but it is the Lord who directs their footsteps. Many are the plans of our hearts, but God directs our footsteps even in to preaching and a preaching series. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 20. I'm going to read from the NIV, and if the technology works out, it should be up on the screen behind me. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And before I read on, this gives us a context. This is a time stamp, if you will. In the ancient world, if anyone asked, is there anyone more important than Caesar? The question or the answer would be no. The common refrain of the day was Caesar is Lord. In fact, this was one of the reasons the early church was persecuted, because they would say Jesus is Lord. There is no one more powerful than Caesar. And so it starts, the story starts in a time frame, and it says this is the time it happened. And it happened under this ruler, this person of power. And we continue reading in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You know, the the circumstances of Jesus' birth are mind-boggling because they are so basic. They're so humble in origin. We have this picture of a regal figure, Caesar, this ruler on a throne in a palace. And in contrast, there's a baby in a manger This is as average as it comes. His birthplace is determined by the need to fill out a census. Joseph and Mary end up in the town of David in Bethlehem. But this birth is is rustic. And I'll just switch to this one. So his birth is, is rustic. It's humble. There's no room in the guest house. There's no room in the inn, as we know so well. This baby is covered in cloth. Again, nothing wrong, but just mundane. Placed in a manger. A trough to feed animals. The agent of God, the very pinnacle of God's interaction with humanity, spends the first few hours of human life in a manger. 
And unless we don't pause, sorry, unless we pause, we miss that. Can you see the contrast? Here's the emperor, here's Caesar, here's Augustus, this ruler. And in direct contrast, in the most humble of origin, in in the most kind of crazy place, is a baby in a manger, a feeding trough. We read again from verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. You know, the testimony to Jesus' birth is significant in scope. When one considers even the contrast here between the angelic host and the shepherds. You know, angels are the the mysterious beings, the servants of God. Those servants who dwell in the presence of God and do His bidding. And so this angel responds to being sent by God to go and announce this birth. And this angel comes before the shepherds despised in the culture. These were the average Joes. These were the blue-collar workers. Now, I realize when I say blue-collar worker, for some that doesn't necessarily translate. Let me give you an illustration. We all know that blue-collars typically imply kind of labor force or factory line or, or kind of mundane work. I went to a technical high school. Now, In South Africa, you have run-of-the-mill high schools, and they offer all the usual suspects, I should say usual subjects, and and you can go. And there we go. That's high school. But there are also high schools called technical high schools that include certain technical subjects. So woodwork, technical drawing, motor mechanics, welding, electrical work, all that kind of stuff. And, And it's an ideal high school to go to if you intend on ending in a trade or going into engineering. I wanted to go into architecture, and they had a great program for that, so I ended up at a technical high school. And of course, all my friends would mock me Because in my technical subjects, I had to wear an overall, blue overalls over my uniform. I had a friend, we did a, a, in grade 12, we did the school swap with a couple of kids. I don't know why, but you know, you would go to their school for a few days and then they would come to your school for a few days. And my, my good friend came to our school and joked with us going, oh, I hope you don't put me in an overall today. And our first subject was in overalls. And, and she was just horrified that she had to put an overall over a uniform. But that's what the shepherds were. They were blue-collar workers. They were kind of the, the outcasts or the, you know, we're just kind of like, yeah, we know we need you, but you stay out there. That's why the text says they were living in the fields. The Lord didn't allow for them to even enter into the temple. They were necessary, but you know what? You just stay out there. And an angel of the Lord appears to them, the lowly, the marginalized. And in this picture again is this beautiful image of heaven meeting earth in this glorious moment as an angel connects with the ordinary. 
And the shepherds quite understandably are afraid. But the angel again assures them there's no need to be afraid. When God moves, when God does what God wants to do, humanity has nothing to fear. Because God moves in grace. And this announcement is called good news. It's the word we get gospel from. The term, by the way, is not culturally insignificant for this audience. Because the gospel was the pronouncements of good news of some life change that would impact everyone. Did you know that Caesar's birth was announced as a gospel of good news? Caesar's birth was announced as a message of salvation to all the people. And so the angels, under the direction of God, go, you know what, we're going to use your language, humans. Here is real good news. Here is the announcement of gospel. Here is the salvation. This birth will change all of history. This is Good news, the birth of a Savior, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And as this angel pronounces this, we we break into verse 13, and I love the picture. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So the angel singular is sent by God to tell the shepherds of this message. But as he completes the message, an angelic host reveal themselves and break into spontaneous worship. They praise God, giving him honor for what is taking place. You know, this this angelic refrain actually serves as a commentary for us. Don't skip over it too quickly. Don't read it and ignore the message of what these angels are saying even as they worship. Glory should be given to God in the most exalted of ways. While on earth one should see that this child means peace for those on whom God's favor rests. This is what the angels say. It's the picture of being a person of God's favor. This was a Jewish way of saying that someone was numbered among God's chosen people. Much like the God-fearers that we read in chapter 1. The remark makes it clear that salvation and all its fullness is not automatic for everyone. It's for those who respond to this gift of grace. To those who follow the path that is lit by the rising of the sun. That image comes from chapter 1 and verse 78 and 79. Yes, Jesus comes for all, but not all will respond to that gift of grace. We continue reading in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph. And the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
The shepherds hear the announcement. They see the angelic host. So they get up and they go and see for themselves this mystery that is being revealed to all humanity. They respond in obedience and are so moved by what they have experienced, they cannot help but share that testimony with others around them. They find Jesus and they spread the good news. You know, it's, it's often seen as, as true and, and we've all experienced it. How when somebody meets with Jesus and is radically changed and interacts with Jesus, they cannot help share that. This is why sometimes the best evangelists are those who've just been saved, who've just come to Jesus. Get them out before they, before they figure out too much in the church. Just get them to spread Jesus because they're passionate about it. My friends, can I have a little sidebar moment here? Why is it that we get to a point where we, we don't want to share Jesus anymore? Maybe we're embarrassed. Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we don't want to offend someone. Those who've encountered Jesus cannot help but share Jesus. And I would encourage you, I I would pray for you, meet with the real and living Jesus if you've lost that fire to share. The angels experience and they go and discover their purpose is to go and share this message. So they go and tell the good news experiencing the love of God. Just like that old hymn says, go and tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is Lord. They were never the same again. I truly believe you cannot, we cannot be the same when we connect with the love of God. It should leave us in a state of marvel, in a state of wonder, in a state of how can this be even as we experience it? While I was preparing for this and reading through, I came across a story that Francis Chan shares. And I thought it's just too good not to share. For those who don't know, Francis Chan is an author and a preacher as well. And has written a number of really excellent books. But he shares a story of a wedding that he conducted. And it was unusual in the sense that the lady who was getting married, it was her second marriage. Her husband had passed away many, many years ago. And she had one daughter. And this daughter, although the daughter was 26 years old, had the mental capacity and the emotional capacity of a six-year-old. And so she had raised this child and she had been walking with this child and mothering and caring for this child. And of course had all the challenges that come with that. And eventually she found love again. But she still couldn't grasp why this man would, would love her so freely and love her daughter so freely. But she, she loved her, just rested in that. And Francis Chan says, at the wedding day, as the husband was putting the ring on the wife-to-be's finger, he had already prearranged it with the pastor, he called the daughter up and he put a ring on her finger. And kind of brought her into that and said, I love you. You're my child. I choose you. And of course, you can imagine there's not a dry eye in the crowd that day. But in the midst of it, Francis Chan, like all good preachers, went, that'll preach. That's a sermon illustration right there. There is nothing more visible than the love of God for humanity that takes us as we are and there's nothing we could do, there's nothing we have done and he loves and receives us. This child in a manger is not simply a baby born in the strangest of places and times. This is God revealing his love for us. 
That while we were still sinners, he came. He came out of love. So yes, Mary and Joseph may have had plans, but God directs their footsteps. To be in Bethlehem for a census, to experience no room in the inn, all the way through to the angels appearing to the shepherds, God's love is revealed. His plan of redemption is shown. This is no coincidence as we sing at Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is, has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. You know, as I read through this passage, there are a couple of truths that jump out. And I know that for some of you, you already know these truths. You've responded to these truths. I don't want you to switch off this morning and go, okay, this is kind of one of those gospel presentations. I know this, so I'm just going to move on. I would encourage you this morning again, be confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ, born for you and I. And perhaps if you've never responded it, I would encourage you to read through and, and look at some of these points that jump out from this passage. The first thing that jumps out for me is God's love for us is unconditional. God did not have to come, yet he chose to come to mankind. He came to the least so that no one could boast. No one could believe they have redemption without him or that they could earn it. He brought good news that will cause great joy for all people, is what the angels declare. God's love is unconditional. God's love comes to redeem all humanity. We know it so well from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God came to redeem mankind. As Paul wrote, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God's love is unconditional. God's love comes to redeem us all. God's love is undeserved. I'm constantly amazed that God's love for me is patient. God's love for me is kind. God's love for me never gives up on me. He loves me in spite of my weaknesses. He loves us. And he came for us that we might have abundant life. And that is not based on our performance. It's based on what he has done. He came, he lived, he bled, he died, and he rose again. Coming in that dirty manger is just the beginning of him showing his love for us. I can't wait until we get to Luke chapter 15 and we get to the prodigal son because we're going to see this again. As the son goes off and makes his own way and he ends up eating with pigs. And even there, he comes to his senses and realizes, you know what, my father's servants do better than this. And he gets up and starts heading back to his father. Before he can even say anything to his father, because he hasn't even arrived, his father sees him from the distance and runs out to him. And, and before he can ask for anything, his father wraps him with his cloak and puts a ring on his finger, as though he had never left, and brings him back in to his family. 
This gift of love, this unconditional, undeserved gift of grace. We don't have to do anything first. God moved toward us first. Jesus had to come. There was no other way for him to touch humanity than with his love coming in human flesh. The Apostle Paul writes to the persecuted church in Romans chapter 8. And he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. How could and why could Paul say that? Because Paul remembered God, infinite, holy, eternal, immortal, took on flesh and came. And because of that, just that alone, Paul can write with confidence, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. God's love, I believe if we're honest, is truly difficult to grasp. It's beyond our comprehension in our finite minds. But it's not beyond our ability to experience with the Lord. Let me say that again. God's love might be beyond our ability to comprehend with our finite mind. But it is not beyond our ability to experience when we receive Christ. When we cry out to Him. This child... As the scriptures say, it will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. Why? Because some will accept and some won't. Jesus never forces himself on anyone. He simply offers the invitation and bids that we would come. For all people and for those who respond. Now it might be that you responded years ago. And I'm hoping that in the midst of going through this little passage from Luke this morning, maybe you responded and you've drifted off in your own. Drifted off through your own decisions and your own actions and you kind of feel like you're way out there. My prayer is this morning again, you would see the invitation to receive this gift of grace in Christ. Maybe you've never made that decision. Maybe you've never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. I would encourage you this morning is the time to make that decision. To accept the gift of love found only in Jesus Christ who became a human. To experience life, to live the life he created for us and then to die for us. And as we will discover in a few weeks time when we gather around Easter, he didn't remain dead. He was raised back to life, overcoming death and darkness to give us life forevermore. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we consider the Christmas story, it's such an easy story to read over and and almost ignore because we've heard it so many times. And so, Lord, this morning, I thank you that you've directed our footsteps to consider the Christmas story outside of Christmas, but to consider it in the midst of Easter, to remember why you came. 
And so, Lord, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit, help us to gather around that manger, as it were, and to see your love for us play out in that picture. And Father, for those of us who have never responded to your gift of life, to your invitation to us, my prayer is that this morning you would draw those men and women to yourself. And then, Lord, for those of us who did that and perhaps have wandered off, oh God, would you draw us back in that unconditional love, that love that knows no limits and no boundaries, that love from which we can never truly run away of our own doing. There is nothing we could do that would make you love us less, even as there is nothing we could do that would make you love us more. For you are love, and you love us. Help us to experience that in our hearts, to know it. For we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, and together we say, Amen.